The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. A tricky year lies ahead for global central bankers as they try to curb high inflation without slamming the brakes on growth. The balancing act is a particularly hard one for the US Federal Reserve, whose decisions are crucial for financial markets. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange group business. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Swaha Pashnaik, the global economics editor of Reuters Breaking Views. And this is part of our special prediction series in which we chat with decision makers from around the world about key issues for the year ahead. Today's episode features San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. We talked about tackling high US inflation, how much the central bank might need to raise interest rates, and promoting inclusive growth. I'm Swaha Patnaik, the Global Economics Editor of Reuters Breaking Views. Joining me on the Breaking Views side of the team is Rob Cox, the head of the Global Breaking Views team. And it's our really great pleasure to have President Mary Daly with us today at a really critical juncture for the Federal Reserve and policymaking in general in the central bank world. Let me get started. There are so many questions to ask, but central bankers like yourself, President Mary Daly, have coped with more than your fair share of crises since 2008. The current environment is, however, posing a very different challenge for central bankers around the world, but the Fed in particular. After a very long period of low inflation, US consumer prices are rising at their fastest pace in four decades. I'm not asking you to look into a crystal ball, and I know the Fed will be guided by incoming data as and when you make great decisions in the coming year. But this is a very different recovery, stronger inflation, stronger growth, job market bounce back very quickly relative to past cycles. Should we be expecting the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates in bigger increments than the quarter point hikes we've seen in the past? And will the peak for interest rates where we get to eventually the so-called terminal rate in this cycle be higher and have to be higher than it was in previous ones? Sure. Terrific question. So let me first say thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to the questions from the the listeners as well. The the very first thing to say is that even in a period which is very different than the period we have just come through prior to the pandemic, we always are guided by two simple mandates that Congress gave us, price stability and full employment. And so balancing those two things is, is always the challenge. And you rightly describe that the challenge today feels a little more acute than perhaps in the past expansion because we have inflation that's hitting levels that no one's comfortable with. I'm not comfortable with the levels of inflation hitting a 40-year high. But we also have a labor market that is relatively strong. We have record openings for jobs. We have people, the unemployment rates dropped to 3.9%. We have workers uh, bidding up wages, getting wage growth, getting better working conditions. So this is all an economy that speaks to uh, getting itself on a self-sustaining path and perhaps having more inflation, definitely having more inflation than we want in the long run. And all of this can be traced back to a couple of things, the resiliency of the economy to the pandemic, but also the fact that the pandemic has desperately and 
in, in a challenging way, affected supply chains, affected people's ability to come back to work fully. We still have 4 million workers who never returned to work after the pandemic sitting on the sidelines because they have to take care of children or older people or just feel at risk with their health. And so in supply chain bottlenecks globally are pushing prices up. We also are coming off really high fiscal support, extraordinary fiscal and monetary support, and consumers are flushed with cash, if you will, and they're spending it, but they're spending it on goods for their homes and not so much on services, which are constrained. So all of these features make this a really challenging time to bring the economy you know, off of its extraordinary support and onto its more sustainable support. So for my mind, to go back to your question with that context, for my mind, when you're trying to get an economy from extraordinary support to one that's going to just gradually put it onto a self-sustaining path, you have to be data dependent, as we, we say, but you also have to be gradual and not disruptive. We are not behind the curve. We are not behind the curve at all. We are just actually doing appropriate policy, getting ourselves to a point where we can weather COVID, continue to sustain the economy, but recognize that extraordinary support is no longer needed. So I do see rate increases in our future as early as March should the data cooperate. And whether we get past or below the terminal rate, I think I would just look to the last summary of economic projections produced in December. There were no participants who had us going above the terminal rate because again, we're not trying to uh, combat some vicious wage price spiral. We're just recognizing the, the economy is getting itself on a self-sustaining path and it doesn't need the extraordinary help that we've been offering it throughout the pandemic. As you grapple with this though, there are a couple of things that are unfortunately playing against you. One is energy prices, oil prices, say the price of Brent crude has gone uh, to its highest level since 2014. We have uh, supply chain disruptions that you mentioned, which have lasted longer. We'll come back to supply chains, especially sitting where you're sitting in California. So you have a particularly good visibility on some of the issues. But these are not things that are resolving themselves quickly and are not under your control either. So, I mean, where do you see how, how much of a problem is the energy price, which you would normally look through, but it's hard to when inflation is already at 7% and may give rise to that wage price spiral that you don't think is a problem now. Right, ab absolutely. So, so when we say we look through price variations in energy and other things, it's really because we've expected them historically, and I'm talking over decades of central banking, to be transitory. They, they come, they go, and if you react to them, by the time the, the reaction takes effect, after 12 to 18 months, you've already, you know, the economy's passed it and weathered it. So that's the idea of looking through it. What we see today is broad-based price pressures across a wide range of goods. It's not just in isolated in energy markets. It's just not isolated in the COVID-affected sectors. It's more pervasive than that. And that calls for us to recognize that inflation's rising and that affects you know, every consumer, every American goes to the grocery, goes to get gas, goes to buy a house and finds that price inflation is high and uncomfortably so. So that's what I'm looking through to is how do we think about this broader escalation of inflation and what's the appropriate policy path to, to bridle that a little bit. Ultimately, it comes back to basic economics. Demand is rising rapidly and supply is constrained. So there's this 
pretty pervasive demand and supply imbalance. Some of that's COVID related. Some of that's the, the over rotation of consumers to, to goods away from services. So they're only purchasing a few things relative to the full market basket. Some of it's the fiscal support. Some of it's our monetary support, but all of it speaks to the same thing. Demand is outstripping supply and prices are rising to, to regulate that. And the consequence is we need to act along with all the other features that are going to unfold in the economy, which is the, the decline in fiscal support going forward, the hopefully COVID moves past us and we get some repair of the supply chains and we ease some of those pressures. And even in energy markets, we start to get things back in balance, production back in balance with demand. But you know, we're coming through an unprecedented, not lived experience pandemic. And so a bumpy ride is not unexpected. Perfect. Let me ask you though, there were, there's a lot of sort of information in there that maybe we could dig into a little bit. Of course. First of all, uh, let me ask you whether you, you spoke again about gradual. I mean, is gradual the same quarter point hikes we saw or could, I mean, what for you is gradual? Could we see 50 basis point hikes? Is that, you know, too fast for you? What would be the hurdle to make you consider that as well? Sure. So to me, and, and so let me just speak for myself, and, and also let me remind every listener that we're in deliberations about this. Chair Powell was very clear about that in his press conference last week. This is an ongoing discussion. You know, there's no preset course. There's not something that we'll just march through no matter what the economy brings. And there are a lot of risks out there right now that we have to be cognizant of. So when I'm speaking about what I think will happen, it's really based on the information I have today. And then tomorrow, that will be old information, and I'll have to take into account what we see unfolding. But if the economy progresses like I see it progressing, then it is clear that it can stand partially on its own two feet, that we do not need to be providing the same level of extraordinary, and I mean, keep underlining this extraordinary, extraordinary accommodation that we provided during the pandemic and have provided for the last two years. Those levels of accommodation are no longer required if the economy continues to have the growth we've seen, the improvements in the labor market and the higher inflation than we're comfortable with, it's well above our target. So it's appropriate then to remove that accommodation. That I think most people can agree with. Then the question is tactical. How do you do that well so that you manage the risks before you? Because you don't want, in my judgment, to overreact and ratchet up the rate so quickly that as the rates percolate through the economy, it bridles it more than we think. Or we're not the only game in town, as I mentioned. While we're moving the uh, tightening policy, the fiscal support is rolling off for the average American, and you're not going to have that big boost from fiscal. We also think, hope, that supply chains will start to ease. You're already seeing a little bit of indication that as COVID moves away, supply chains repair somewhat. When that will happen exactly is hard to predict, but it is absolutely something that I expect to start repairing in 2022. So those features mean that There'll be other disinflationary pressures, not just the Fed's tightening of policy and managing our interest rate path with the incoming data, you know, doing some looking around, doing some more looking around, that would be appropriate. But from my vantage point, and this is perhaps your real question, do we need to adjust the policy rate? Absolutely. When you think about the SEP, I referenced it before the summary of economic projections, you know, the, the median was four, I think. So that's at 1.25. 
uh, interest rate at the end of 22. If you get to that point, so say that is the reality, you get to that point, that's quite a bit of tightening, but it's also quite a bit of accommodation left in the system because the terminal, you know, the neutral rate of interest is 2.5. So you still have, you're supporting the economy, not pulling away the punch bowl completely and, and causing disruptions, but you're taking away some of the extraordinary accommodation that we've been providing. And I think that balance is the appropriate thing to do with the uncertainty we face. You also mentioned the issue of people facing very high inflation, 7%. That's the sort of inflation rate, especially when it's focused on things like energy prices, as it has been, that hurts the most disadvantaged in society, the poorest in society. That's a really difficult quandary for the Fed, especially since in 2020, it had a big written branch review, looked at its monetary policy framework and wanted to focus its dual mandate on having and promoting more inclusive employment growth and giving growth a chance to take hold long enough that unemployment rates for those most disadvantaged people would fall. Now, what we're seeing, unfortunately, it's hard because the inflation rate is hurting them. And yet we haven't seen the unemployment rate fall for these disadvantaged groups as quickly as it has for the broader economy, if you like. Could you talk a little bit about that really difficult conundrum, especially given the flexible sort of inclusive focus that you uh, all agreed on with the new review. So one of the things that I'll point out, and, and many may not know this, is that the Federal Reserve, I've been working at the Federal Reserve since 1996, so I have a long history of service in this, in this system. And what I will tell you is that the focus on an inclusive economy, a dual mandate that works for every American, not just the average American, which is really a description of no one in the United States. The average is an average. It's a mathematical average. It's not a description of any particular person. That was long recognized in the Fed. And so what the framework review really was about was it was asking, what's the best way to achieve our dual mandate goal? And what do we need to be clearer about for the every American so that they understand how we do our work? And on the outcome of the framework, we decided that average inflation targeting, you know, that's flexible average inflation targeting, average of 2% is the best way to achieve sustainable 2% inflation, which is what we need to have an economy that is, you know, has price stability. And also focusing and letting people know that there isn't a magical number. There's not something written in a stone tablet that says this is the level of full employment. We don't know that. It's a dynamic um, number that adjusts as the economy adjusts. We put that forward and we said, importantly, full employment also means full employment inclusively so that every American who wants a job can get one and people can depend on the dollar having the same value roughly that it had the week before. So those are the two things that came out of the framework. And then we apply our framework to today. And what's different about today, as you rightly described, uh, very clearly described, is that our two goals feel somewhat to some people like they're in tension. That we have inflation that we need to offset, but we have yet to, to recover the 4 million jobs, 4 million individuals who were working before the pandemic who are not working now. And so that leaves us with this kind of um, decision point, what do we do? And the way that I think about it is this, inflation is a regressive tax. The research literature that's there will show you some elements of that, but common sense tells you that when you have 
uh, you're a lower moderate income person and you're paying for higher rent, higher gas and higher food prices, then you have less money for other things. And that's difficult, that's challenging. On the other side of it, we know that the individuals who are least likely to be a, right the first hired in a, in a recovery are less advantaged groups. And so you're absolutely right, those goals feel intention. But here's how I look at it, that inflation's too high for everyone, but particularly for those groups, and that the labor market is stronger than it has been in a long time for those groups. In fact, I'm very encouraged by two things. One, if you look at Hispanic, African-American, Less than, less than high school education, groups that are historically disadvantaged, their unemployment rates are falling rapidly. They're just not falling to the levels of, of the average. But that's always the case because there's partly structural factors there. But the fact that it's falling as the economy recovers, that's good news. The other thing that's good news is wage growth is most rapid in the lowest wage sectors because those workers are in high demand. And so this is another good piece of an inclusive recovery. So for me, again, I put this at, it's time to adjust the policy rate to get the economy on a sustainable path because one of the key elements that got we learned in the framework review and in the last expansion is a long sustained expansion is what really helps less advantaged Americans. A long and sustained expansion allows them to get a foothold in the economy, move up in their jobs, build income, build wealth, buy homes, do the things that you know ultimately people wanna do. And the Fed's responsible for that sustainable expansion that gives everybody that opportunity. One of the dynamics you're talking about is the, the labour market sort of being tight enough to be able for workers to be able to ask for higher wages or quit and go somewhere else for the higher wages if their current employer won't give them. Um, let me ask you two questions first. You talked about how many people sort of seem to disappear from the labour market for a range of reasons because of COVID. There may be, I mean, to what extent do you see this as structural? We're all still grappling around the world with some forms of restrictions, education not completely perhaps returned or care needed for um, some family members. But do you expect this to be a return to pre-COVID levels of participation? And if we don't, what sort of wage pressures could come up? So that's a terrific question, one we think, uh, spend a lot of time thinking about. And I don't think there's a specific answer that we have right now, because again, the labor market evolved. But let me give you some lessons from my long experience as a labor economist and as a Fed uh, working at the Fed, but also from just watching the labor market again and again, decade after decade. It is very um, frequent. In fact, it almost always happens that people, all of us, declare cyclical things structural far too early that we see a missing group of people, say 4 million workers who haven't come back. And then we say, well, okay, a lot of them say they're retired. Um, many of them say they've had an epiphany and they no longer wanna work. And so we start writing them off one by one. And then we become satisfied with the labor market that we have because we've forgotten the aspiration of the labor market that we need. And I will help, I will just encourage all of us to not be too quick to declare victory on full employment, to not be too quick to declare all of this a structural issue. Do we have structural challenges going forward? Absolutely. But do we have the means to manage them? I think so. And what the Fed's job is, is to deal with the economy we have today. And that economy is one that where labor supply is highly disrupted by COVID. 
people did retire in large numbers because they found that the Zoom environment oftentimes wasn't good for them, or they needed to go and help their, their children take care of their children because they needed childcare provisions, or they were just worried about their health. And they just didn't want to continue to participate when their health was at risk. But as COVID recedes, as we get back to more fundamental dynamics, we have learned that retirement is not a permanent state. It's not something that you do and you never come back to work. And I expect those workers, some of them, to return, especially in a new flexible work environment we have where you've got hybrid, you don't have to work full time all the time. You've got all kinds of things you can do. We've seen that in previous expansions. I expect the same thing to happen. And then, of course, we have you know, the millions of moms out there largely who are, and women in general, who are taking care of community, family, et cetera. And I believe those individuals do want to work, do want to have their careers, but just don't have the opportunity to do so right now. So yes, I'm very bullish on uh, the labor market fully recovering. But again, as a Fed official, I have to deal with what I have today which is a pretty strong tight labor market and high inflation, but then be open and humble enough to adjust as we get more labor supply coming in, as inflation comes back down to more target levels and imagine what the world would be and what policy will be um, once that's achieved, which is why I'm completely comfortable with making adjustments in 22, but not knowing what the next adjustments will be in 23 to the policy rate. Thank you. You talked earlier about the average, average American, I think you were referring to, but that made me wonder, and if I might come back to the flexible average inflation targeting mandate that the Fed adopted. Um, one of the things that is perhaps slightly vague and is not defined at the moment is the averaging period. I mean, usually you say this is your population of Americans, I'm averaging over them. Uh, here, it would be an average inflation over two years, five years, 10 years, you come out with a very different policy outcome perhaps because of that. And one can say, who cares? You know you will get, get the job done. Uh, as long as you know, you don't have to reveal it to the rest of us, but it does help anchor public expectations, the expectations of markets who set borrowing costs for you know, the rest of us. Sure. Do you think it's worth clarifying that average, perhaps, a little bit? So we were specific in being not committed to a particular averaging period because, and that's why it's flexible average inflation targeting. It's really about trying to achieve that sustainable longer run growth rate and have an economy that has price stability and full employment. So what we really are doing, and this is my judgment, how I think about the framework, what we, what we agreed to, how we're executing it is that in the past decade, when inflation ran below its 2%, our 2% target for a decade, well, that was clearly an average that we never achieved whether you use business cycle frequency or other things. But if you went back and looked over a year, there were many times where we had achieved the 2% over that decade. But that's not the same as sustainable price stability. That's just episodic good fortune of price stability. So obviously, too short a period leaves you wanting, in a, especially in the past expansion when we, we really struggled to get it up to 2% consistently. Today, we're in a completely different situation. You could pretty much use any averaging period you could consider, and you would find that we have achieved our two percent averaging. And what we're so what I'm focusing on now is two things: how do we get inflation back down to something sustainable and in price stability, and what are the forces 
we face ahead that might push inflation down again below our 2% target. Those forces haven't gone away. They're just being completely crowded out right now by COVID-related disruptions and the, and the higher inflation readings we see because of those. But we still have an aging population globally, slower productivity growth globally, a lower neutral rate of interest, and that all puts downward pressure on inflation going forward. And so those are risks we have to balance. The inflation we have today against the pressures that are still with us that we're likely to reemerge and see in the medium run once COVID is fully behind us. Let me ask you about perhaps another structural factor, which may be a new one that we haven't dealt with. And as you know, central bankers or economists perhaps hasn't been as talked about as much, which is the, the green transition, decarbonization. Do you have any sympathy with the point of view expressed by, on this side of the Atlantic, Isabel Schnabel of the European Central Bank, who argued that there are both short-term and long-term price pressures that will emerge from decarbonisation in the long-term, perhaps because there's so much public-private investment in it, that you sort of pump prime the economy and there isn't perhaps the capacity to, to cope with all of it without prices rising, that that may be a sort of structural price pressure coming from energy sort of sources that central banks can't as easily ignore as they have in the past. Is that a structural factor you think coming down the line? So let me um, back up from her particular point, since I haven't had a chance to do her speech justice and, and read it as carefully as I will need to. But let me talk more broadly about the point. There are always factors coming into the economy, global economy, national economy, that affect the dynamics of inflation. And I mentioned several just a moment ago, the aging population, slower productivity growth, et cetera. When you make a transition, whether you know any transition, but this energy, upcoming energy transition, moving from you know, mostly carbon-based fuels to more green technologies, then that transition can cause price pressures, especially in the short run, because the economy is geared up for one kind of energy production and it has to move to another kind of energy production. We have all just witnessed and are still witnessing what it feels like when supply and demand are completely out of balance, prices rise in, in reaction. So then the question for all of us is, and this is one of the reasons in the San Francisco Fed we study climate risk, is to understand not just inflation dynamics, but labor market dynamics, financial dynamics, but inflation is a key one. What are the inflationary pressures we're likely to see? And what we've learned so far, but definitely more study is needed, is it really depends on the speed of the transition. If we flip the switch and we did everything overnight, well, then we'd have you know pretty large imbalances. But if businesses can plan, and they already are, for the challenges in the change, then they can prepare themselves, investing in factories, investing in methods of production that actually ease the inflationary pressure. So I think it's too early to call this a net increase in inflation, and the research would say that it's still an open question. We know what would make it inflationary. We know what would not make it as inflationary. And then it's up to you know the Federal Reserve and other central banks to manage whatever the societies that we live in decide is appropriate. I mean, ultimately climate mitigation, climate management is not the job of the Federal Reserve. We are there to study the economic effects of those choices. And the fiscal agents, our elected officials are there to manage how we think about this. Let me ask you, I mean, and perhaps this is the argument that central banks, bankers should stay in their lane and not get in the way of politicians handling it. Having said that, central bankers are also responsible for financial stability issues. 
do you think there is anything that the Fed should be doing more of to help the transition be smoother in the financial stability risk sense um, when you're responding to climate change? You intimated this or said this. In the, in the United States, we have a very clear mandate from Congress. Price stability, full employment, we're responsible for the payment system and with other regulators responsible for the financial system. Those are our jobs. Those are our goals. That's what we spend our time on. So we don't have any tools to manage climate change or mitigate climate risk. What we can do is study what the impact of those changes are on the payment system, on the economy, on the financial system, and be prepared to manage those risks. What you definitely don't want, in my opinion, is a central bank that's so far behind because we haven't been thoughtful about these that we can't actually manage the risks when they emerge. So we're forward looking, we're looking at those risks, we're already talking to you know, people in the economy, to businesses, to financial firms, to banks, to, to our community members about how this is affecting them. But our job clearly is to study, be aware, and recognize where the risks are so that we can be prepared. Our job is not to mitigate these risks in any real way. Our job is to be aware that the risks occur. And our elected officials are thinking hard about what to do on the risk mitigation side. Let me stay with things that are not really the central bank's concern, may start impinging on the central banks in that thing. One is the financial markets. It's not the central bank's job at all to worry about this level of stock price or that level of stock price or whether bond yields are going up or down to a certain extent. When equity markets really fall out of bed, that can have wealth effects, that can have confidence effects for the broader economy that matter. And as for the bond price we saw in 2020, what sort of financial stability risk could have been posed across the world when a treasury market, which is the benchmark global bond market, doesn't function as well as we all expect it to 24 seven. So in that case, I mean, I'm not asking whether the Fed cares about current levels of stock market declines, but what do you think it might take if we're looking at a faster sort of pace of tightening or guidance that somehow upsets the markets in one way, what would it take for this to impinge on the Fed's consciousness and say this we do need to worry about? Sure. So let me let me tackle. That's a, a very deep question. So let me just start to pull it apart and tackle different aspects of it. Um, and I appreciate the question greatly. So let's start with the I don't know which order to start it, but I'm gonna start with this order. There's a really important distinction that I want everyone to know about things that completely dislocate markets, things that cause financial stability issues, the treasury market you referenced, those are financial dislocations that absolutely are damaging to economic growth, to economic activity, and to many, many firms, businesses in American households and global households. So we definitely um, pay attention to those, but those are rare events, not regular events. And those are things that come on the heels of large shocks, large dislocations. And what we're really talking about when we talk about interest rate changes, you know, monetary policy changes, moving from the zero lower bound of extraordinary accommodation to something that's more uh, supportive of the current system, the current economy we have, that's more about just getting used to it. And financial markets fluctuate in response to change and turning points from, you know, being extraordinarily accommodative to less accommodative are always a place where markets are saying, okay, what's exactly going to happen and how do I position for it? So 
that volatility is not unexpected. And importantly, we're not the only thing in the that markets are looking at. Markets right now are also looking at, no matter what market they're in, stock market, uh, bond market, et cetera, they're looking at Omicron. Will there be a new variant? What's going to happen in China? Geopolitical risk. What's, you know, what's the new future of work look like? Will people come back to work? Will they not come back to work? They're looking at a wide range of things and constantly repositioning themselves in response to those things. So what, the, what we do in the Fed and what I do as a policymaker is I'm always looking at financial financial conditions, stock markets, bond markets, corporate leverage, uh, household leverage, all of those financial conditions matter for the financial health of our economy and ultimately the financial health of the globe. So I'm looking at all of those things and ensuring, and this I'll conclude with, ensuring that we are not part of the problem by causing people not to know what to expect. If one thing is clear from decades of study of the Federal Reserve System and other central banks, transparency and clear communications are important. And it's one of the reasons now that I'm not making, and you don't hear me or, or other, Chair Powell didn't do this, making proclamations of a specific path because that would be misinformation, because it ultimately were data dependent. And if we get everyone prepared for a single path, and then the economy changes, and that path's no longer relevant or optimal, then that would be a misuse of our transparency. So transparency is about telling you where we're, how we think about the world, and in telling you what we see going forward now, but not making proclamations that outlast the span of our forecasts. Perfect. I'm going to hand over to Rob, but before I do, one quick question. You mentioned financial conditions and the whole gamut of information that goes into deciding uh, what financial conditions are. Do you think they're appropriate, given money markets are sort of pricing in slightly faster take rate rises than you are, yields have gone up. Do you think financial conditions in the round are appropriate today as we stand yeah, terrific question. Thank you. So if you look broadly at financial conditions, I feel very comfortable with where we are. You know, businesses are, are have cash, banks are well capitalized, households are extraordinarily well positioned, especially relative to the financial crisis, but just in general. And so those are the, the stalwarts of our financial, our financial system. Of course, we do have some, I have, there are things in, in money markets and in the crypto markets and other things that, that bear watching and everyone is watching them. And I'm encouraged by the SEC and, and other forms, other regulatory bodies taking interest in those areas and ensuring that. And of course, you mentioned the treasury market, you know, projects that work on the treasury market and, and everything from centralized clearing to, you know, other ways we can make sure that the treasury market's not disrupted. Those are all important features of the going forward. But when I look over it, I'm really reassured that households, banks, and businesses feel like they have a lot of liquidity and they're in a good position to weather storms. And that's what we want. Great. Let's go over to our audience. Uh, Rob, passing over to you so you can put some of these questions. Thank you, President Daly. Thank you, Swaha. Um, yeah, so we have quite a few questions. I've tried to lump them into various buckets. So um, I think we have markets, labor, and inflation, not surprisingly taking up the bulk of the questions. Let me just jump in. Some of these you've kind of touched on, Mary, but um, I'll give you an opportunity to kind of give your views on uh, and, and further refine the points. As the Fed prepares to tighten policy, perhaps more sharply if inflation runs away, what has the uh, the Federal Reserve learned from the 1994 Great Bond Market Massacre episode? So we learn things from every episode. Uh, we actually have 
I, you wouldn't believe the amount of time I've spent looking at the Spanish flu data and how global economies responded to that and, and other things. So we learn from all the crises and what we learn, and this is the pull through lesson, is that data dependence, transparency, you speak of bond markets, transparency matters, communicating. So that's why Swaha mentioned it earlier, we have a framework review. We then published our framework. Then we said, here's how we're gonna manage our framework, our statements. We released our balance sheet reduction plan principles just last week. These are all efforts to signal to not just markets, but businesses and households, what we intend to do and how we intend to do it, what we would be guided by. Because ultimately being data dependent means that the best tool we can give uh, the people we serve, markets would be among those, is our reaction function, how we think about the world and how we'll react to incoming information. So that's, that's what I've learned from this. Communication matters, transparency matters, but transparency of how we think about the world so that when people see the data we see, they have a pretty good indication of where we're heading. That is our, our, our most important tool. I guess the sort of corollary to that is, are you worried about the signals the yield curve is currently sending? So there's a lot of focus on the yield curve right now. I will say the yield curve is not flat and it's not negative, it's positive, and it's well within its historical range, at least the last time I checked. So, so I, I think that we absolutely you think about the yield curve. I look at the yield curve. We have many ways of dissecting the yield curve to, inch, to, to get the signals from it, but we don't control the yield curve especially if we don't control the long end. The long end is affected by a variety of things. And I mentioned a number of them, you know, how markets see Omicron, how markets see the, the, the near neighbor variant that's developing, the, how markets see the responsiveness of households once the pandemic is eased, supply chain disruptions, geopolitical risks. Those are all things that affect the long end. And so while we watch the yield curve, and we, we don't control it. And as a consequence, it's just another input into our overall assessment of financial conditions. Right now, though, I don't see reason to worry. May I just jump in, Rob, on that point on controlling the yield curve? One of the ways the central bank does control the yield curve, though, uh, President Daly, is because of its bond purchases. Also, you have a huge amount of bonds sitting on your balance sheet. What do you think about how that balance sheet should be shrunk? Because that will control the yield curve and what's rising, what's falling, etc. Should it be shrunk aggressively? Are you willing just to passively let it roll off? So let me just make one um, refinement of that of that uh, sentence, if I may. We don't control the yield curve, but you're absolutely right that the asset purchases in our balance sheet affect the yield curve, especially at the medium and longer end. So affecting and controlling are different, though. And so, again, we're not the only game in town. You know, the, so let's just for 10 seconds, let me tell you about the research. The research is quite clear that balance sheet policy has an impact. Um, in market dislocation or when the economy is in severe need and we're desperately constrained by the zero lower bound and we need to put forward asset purchases to help. We have a lot less clarity on what the balance sheet does as we reduce it. 
right? We just don't know as much about it. And we are in such a different time than we were the last time we reduced the balance sheet. The economy's stronger. We have a much larger balance sheet. There's a lot of difference, much more at the shorter duration than it was in the past. So we have a lot of different factors. And so from my own vantage point, we will follow the principles that we gave. The principles, that, in case people haven't studied them yet, which I encourage you to do, they're short, is that the funds rate is our primary tool of communicating our policy stance, but our balance sheet policies will be predictable and they'll be, in my mind, uh, in you know, not, there'll be in a background role relative to the funds rate, that's our primary instrument, but we will adjust them at any point in time that we need to, to achieve our full employment and price stability goals. But if you just think of that logic, it doesn't mean that we'll be using it surgically meeting by meeting because we don't know enough, one, and two, it's not our primary instrument, the funds rate is. And we'll be deliberating and thinking about this in coming uh, meetings and I'm positive when we have reached a decision announcing this uh, through our regular communications. Okay, I got a few questions about inflation, <clears throat> not surprising. Um, what if the pandemic recedes and inflation does not slow? How long would you be prepared to wait to decide that inflation is no longer COVID linked? And sort of corollary to that, I'll throw it out there. How do you assess the risk of stagflation down? Sure. I don't really see stagflation, at least in the U.S. I mean, our growth rates higher than potential growth right now. So stagflation would be low growth and high inflation. I really don't see that uh, in our future. I don't see that certainly not happening now. And then the idea that we would bring supply and demand back into balance, both through restraining demand somewhat, you know, if we raise the interest rate, that's going to affect mortgage interest rates. You're already starting to see that happen in the United States. It's going to affect car loan rates. It's going to affect consumers' ability to, to spend on those things and businesses' ability to invest in those things. So that will bring demand down. On the other side, as COVID recedes, I would expect supply chains to recover to some extent. It's hard for the capacity that China has, for instance, it's not destroyed. It's just sidelined for a moment while they control COVID. Once, once they reopen, they'll want to use those factories, use those production processes to redistribute the goods and services that they produce. So there, there's hardly a scenario I can see where COVID recedes and supply chains don't recover. Will they recover as quickly as COVID recedes? I don't know. And will they recover up to the level that we want as quickly as we want? I don't know. But I do expect both of those balances to occur. I will conclude, though, that the worry that I think the question has in it is, will inflation, high inflation readings, get embedded into inflation psychology? And then no matter what the economy delivers, people will still have the idea that they want higher wages, which get passed into higher inflation prices, which then get transferred into higher wages, and we end up in a bad situation. And I just don't see evidence that that's occurring and but it is a risk and it's one that I'm focused on and looking at the data every day to see if I have any indication that's occurring. A uh, quick question about central bank digital currencies. Is there a case in the long term for a central bank digital currency and why and what do you think it might mean for the banking system? Sure. If you haven't already done so, I would encourage all of you to at least read the short version, a summary version of the new Board of Governors paper, the Fed paper that was released, I believe, last week. I lose track of my dates. So it could have in the pandemic, no date seems as certain as it once was. Uh, but we released this paper. The paper is outlining both the pros and the cons and what has to be, you know, think of pros and cons as cases for and worries about. 
And when you think of cases for and worries about, there's a lot to be worked out. So do I think we'll eventually have one? I probably that the world's evolving in a way that the, the central banks across the globe will, will go to this, but it's not ultimately the Fed's decision. Congress has to think about being, us being able to issue a currency digitally. And right now there's a lot of work to do still on balancing out those cases for with the problems or worries about, including privacy, which is a key worry. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. We are working on it ourselves as are many central banks across the globe. And these are important issues with more to come. There's a lot of work to do once the pandemic is beyond us. Well, good. I think, uh, I mean, there are a million questions. People are very, uh, are very, very interested in what you have to say on all of these things, but I think we hit the, 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 main, uh, the main points. I'm gonna hand it back to you, Swala. Thank you very much, Rob. Um, really appreciate your very frank and forthright explanations of where we are at a very difficult juncture where it's hard to see. There's a lot of fog in the economy ahead and uh, appreciate your frankness on this. May I thank you for joining us, Mary, Katie for introducing us at the beginning and the audience for all of your questions and for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Exchange. Today's episode was produced by Thomas Shum and Katrina Hamlin. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on your favourite podcast platform and read our latest views on breakingviews.com.